and even children lisp the rights of man. Amid this mighty fuss, just let me mention, the rights of women merit some attention. The words of Scotland's national poet, Robert Burns. Robert Burns is a poet whose words are very familiar to us. Toward some power the gift to gee us, to see ourselves as others see us. Or should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and days of old lang syne? Robert Burns is hailed as the plowman poet, a symbol for the rural poor, lauded for the humour and earthly realism of his poems that raised the status of the Scots dialect. He's a Scottish cultural icon, as well as a national obsession. His birthday, January the 25th, is celebrated the world over as Burns Night. So it comes as a bit of a shock when we discover that this poet who railed against oppression and wrote The Slave's Lament in 1792 once intended to emigrate to Jamaica to work on a sugar plantation that made its money from the labor of enslaved African people. Burns had been offered the job of bookkeeper on the Springbank Sugar Plantation in Port Antonio through his friend, the doctor Patrick Douglas. And Burns was aware of the nature of the job, but faced with financial straits following the death of his father and a farm that yielded little return and trouble from the family of his common-law wife, Jean, the prospect of a new start and a steady salary were too tempting to refuse. However, his first book of poetry, poems chiefly in the Scottish dialect, was published in July of 1786 and its success opened up an alternative path and although he had purchased tickets to travel to Jamaica at the last minute, he instead went to Edinburgh. Although still unsure of his plans, he booked another passage to Jamaica. But in the end, he finally decided to stay in Scotland. Acclaimed poet Shara McCallum is from Jamaica, born to a Jamaican father and a Venezuelan mother. Her latest book, No Ruined Stone, presents us with a fact-based fictional narrative on Robert Burns and asks the question, what might have happened had Robert Burns gone to Jamaica after all? I spoke by phone recently to poet Shara McCallum. I am not the first person to ask that question, what would have happened had he gone. There is a novel by Andrew Lipsy, a Scottish fiction writer, who also answers that in a fictive, a proper novel, I say. It's hundreds of pages. I actually didn't read Andrew's novel until after I'd finished this project, but the way that I came to even learn of it also speaks to the way that this book came to be, which is that I was in Scotland and I learned this story of Burns. And like many, I knew Burns' poems and songs. And I say many because people sometimes don't realize that they know Robert Burns until you point out that Old Lang Syne is Robert Burns or, um, you know, the phrase we use, the best laid schemes, that's Robert Burns. So his work has really infiltrated our language. And that's an amazing thing for a poet and a songwriter to have that kind of reach across the centuries. 
I think some of the spirit of his ideas, his beliefs in egalitarian thought, you know, coming out of the Enlightenment, those also are present in the work he left. And I knew all of that about Burns. I had loved his poem, Ode to a Mouse, as an undergraduate. And so when I heard that he almost went to Jamaica and would have worked on a slave plantation, Fiona, that really um, struck a chord with me. Being Jamaican, of course, um, having mixed ancestry, of course, I think, played into this. But also that recognition, again, that, you know, sometimes the work of the artist is better than the lived experience of the human who created it. That's really what I went back to to learn then about how close did he actually come to going quite close. You know, he had signed a contract. He had booked passage on three different ships three different times. So it wasn't a passing fancy, you know. Or how much would he have understood? Well, a lot. Abolition was incredibly strong in Scotland. It was in the in the UK. It was the strongest seat of the abolitionist movement was in Scotland. And Burns was a reader and would have absolutely known this, not to mention in the letter, the one document he leaves about his desire to go to Jamaica. He says, I will have to go to be a detested Negro driver. So it's all of that kind of confluence of personal history, the history I came to be completely intimate with through writing and researching for this book that gave birth to the imagined speculative account of history that I present of what would have happened had he gone. It is interesting how it is a very timely thing, but it's one that we encounter over and over again where we have a hero from the past, where we have somebody whose work we deeply admire, and then we find out something really shockingly unacceptable about them. And how do you deal with the art without letting that color you? And you long to go back and say, what were you thinking? And we know that he was Mm -hmm. living at a time when it wasn't just people weren't aware. People were discussing it. People were were very much aware. Well, you know, I think one way I would say this is, you know, I always find it very interesting when conversations come up and they seem new, because for me, this, this conversation seems so very old. And it's not just in terms of, of course, it's been happening for a long time, the reckoning that now is so much part of the national conversation for many of us individually. But when you think about the fact of what we're saying, which is that even during the moment Burns is living through, there there's vociferous debates going on in the court about the morality. So I feel in many ways, I've reckoned with this my whole life. And I started writing this book well before some of the incidents that have come to light for some Americans have made them more aware of racism and its um, its continuation, you know, the impact of slavery that continues to be felt in the present. This, for me personally, isn't new information. And that's always fascinating in the sense that you write a book for years and then sometimes it comes out and it joins a conversation. And that's marvelous in that sense that I feel something so personal to me, my personal reckoning with this, could contribute to a much, much longer conversation with a a vast history.
When we think of Burns, we think he would have naturally been an abolitionist. He's certainly, in the rest of his life, he was proud of being a plowboy, a farmer's son. He was proud of all those things. And one of the reasons we love Burns, he's not sitting on a silken throne. He's very much aware of what's going on in the world. He is and he isn't, though. And, you know, that's one of those things. And we see this now. I will, I'll bring it into the contemporary moment with social media, which I actually don't participate in, but find fascinating. People present themselves in a way. They market themselves. And believe it or not, Burns was an exceptional poet and also exceptional at marketing that image of himself. He had help. But, um, you know, when we say he was a farmer poet, I mean, that belies the complexity of the education that he actually had. Yes, he absolutely farmed. He was actually not very good at it and ended up actually becoming an exciseman, a taxman later in his life. But the reality is he also read Latin, Greek, had a tutor. So he had the equivalent of quite an extraordinary first-rate education and was very learned. So I think those things can coexist. I say that just because I think sometimes people play up the sort of notion of the particularly for men, the notion of the innate genius, you know, the genius who comes up out of the rubble. And often life is far more complicated than these myths of famous men that we seem to really, as a culture, like to perpetuate. So my interest in it, I think, is the cultural need for men to be geniuses. Of course, the other thing about Burns that we all know, those of us who love Burns, is what a, would we call him a womanizer? What a lover of women oh he gosh, was. absolutely. <laughs> In Jamaica, he had many baby mothers. So, <laughs> I mean, but this all speaks to the Burns who shows up in my book, Fiona, because the things that you and I know about him and that other people who study his life, and of course the biographies that I've read, you know, some are closer to fiction than others particularly the ones written closer to his life, people really wanted to make him into this hero. And they may have given lots of... Some of the biographies don't really even talk about the women or the children that he had with all these different women. So I make it a point in the book to reclaim... I mean, Nancy is an enslaved African woman, so I'm talking about black women and their relationships with white men in this book over and over again. But that distaff side of history, the female side, that comes straight out of Burns' own lived experience. He loved women, but he also didn't necessarily think about the consequences that they faced as compared to him. You know, it's again very complicated to look at the life of a man and not see the contradictions. Those contradictions, as a writer, I have to say that interest me. Paradoxes in human nature interest me. But what I'll just say about it is I learned so much, and it, you know, including the, the thing I love about Burns, too, is how he writes in Scots as well as in English and learned to listen to Scots and read Scots. That, that's the gift of this book, too, is that it deepened my love for the work that he created and at the same time deepened my understanding of that moment in a way that I hope shows him neither as hero nor villain. What you have done is given us a different Nancy to the Nancy that those of us who love Burns know. And we think of Nancy Mm -hmm. as that great romantic figure for whom he wrote one of his greatest poems. And suddenly you give us a different Nancy. 
Yeah, so that was one of those moments where, for me, Nancy is just, again, to say who she is in this book. She is a fictional character. Burns is real. Douglas, the owner of the plantation, based on a real person. The plantation, a real place. So there's a lot of history in this book that's real. And interwoven into that history are these fictive characters. However, they're very much drawn from history. So Nancy's an enslaved African woman on the plantation, Burns Meats. She comes to Jamaica and is part of the slave trade stolen from her home, her mother, and taken across on the fateful Middle Passage that everyone knows about. But I wanted to make it really in the life and voice of an individual very clear in this book that the Middle Passage is also one of those histories that I am engaging with here. And Nancy is formidable. So what's fascinating to me about so many enslaved African women is how they learned to be survivors and to wield power in institutions in which they were doubly disempowered as women and as black people, becoming black people. I mean, in this moment, Nancy is still part of her ethnic group, you know, when she arrives in Jamaica. So that's to say why it was so important for me that Nancy be recast, is that is who he would have known had he gone to Jamaica. And I had no doubt in my mind, given the history of Scots in Jamaica in that time period, and miscegenation is one of the facts of slavery, that he would have had a relationship with her. And it was that choice that you're describing to recast this, to make him write his most famous song, A Fond Kiss for Her, have him write Tam O'Shanter in Jamaica. So these things in his life that are the touchstones for people who know Burns, his poems and his songs, I set them in motion in a different landscape in a different geographical, political landscape. Which is an intriguing thing to do. It gives us a different slant on Burns, but it also gives voice to the voiceless. Right. I mean, I think that the women I'm descended from, their stories have been scripted out of history. You know, there are very personal stakes for me in rewriting Nancy and Isabella in this book is that it's through the imagination, but really wedded to the true history, the fuller history of the past, that I think as a writer I was drawn to engage with these women, these particular women. We're talking about Nancy and then the granddaughter of Burns and Nancy, Isabella, who speaks in the second half. And that voicing that you're speaking about, it's really clear for me that that became part of the project was as much as I wanted to answer that question about what would have happened had Burns gone, I also wanted to give voice and a life and habitation to these women. I'm always fascinated by artists' relationship with place. I am from Jamaica, but I've said this a number of times now, just by virtue of being Jamaican, um, I don't actually know what the land looked like in the 18th century. I'm not an expert on 18th century plantation slavery in Jamaica. Um, So I treated the work of this book partly in a scholarly fashion. I went about it, and I've always loved research, so in this way I was aided by something I love doing. I visited 
Scotland a lot and went to archives and visited and revisited where Burns was born, where he wrote Tam O'Shanter, actually walked across the Brigadoon. I mean, I did these things because I felt I needed to be able to know a place that I was going to recreate. But I did the same, actually, with Jamaica. I went back deliberately. You know, I, I go back to Jamaica to see family, but I went back also on several occasions to also try to read on the present land, the past, just as I was doing in Scotland. It is a work of imagination, ultimately, that reconstructs place in times we have not lived. But we have so many resources available to us through archival materials, through books and recounting of history. You know, I read some of the descriptions of Kingston in that time period. All of them, of course, written by Europeans. But what they gave me was uh, language about even some of the passages that I wanted to describe. The passage over from Kingston over to Port Antonio, which I've taken as a Jamaican many times because I was born in Kingston and actually my family would go to Port Antonio and I spent one summer there as a child. So when I found out that that's where the plantation was, it seemed especially resonant for me since Port Antonio is the place I love best, actually, in Jamaica. So I know what that place looks like in that route, but that's in the 20th and 21st century, which is not what it would have looked like in the 18th. It's a really great question you're asking, and I would say for me, place is one of the things to really always know in order to recreate the stories of people in times past. Even in the present, I often start with place. The title of this book of poems is No Ruined Stone. Can you talk about the title? I would happily talk about the title because I am further wedding myself into history, and in that case, it is the history of Scottish poetry. Hugh MacDiarmid is a 20th century Scot poet. He writes in Scots as well as English, as did Burns, and it's a quote from one of his poems. And the quote is, There are plenty of ruined buildings in the world, but no ruined stones. And when I was in Scotland for one of my visits, I was actually taking part in an exhibition at the Royal Scottish Academy of Art and Architecture. I was invited to do this by the artist whose work is featured on both the American and the UK cover and throughout both of those editions of this book. His name is Callum Colvin. And Callum and I met because of this project, and he is deeply invested. He's a photographer in the work of poets in Scottish history, so Burns, MacDiarmid, and also had a great interest in just the connection between visual arts and poets. So I went over to Scotland to respond to one of Callum's pieces in the exhibition. There were five poets invited to do this. Callum had mounted the annual exhibition, and I chose his piece to write a response to. That response is the first poem in this book. And had I not gone to do that, in many ways it was opening the floodgates for me to speak to Burns. It's a portrait of Max Yarmid, and in his eyes, uh, Callum Colvin has put Robert Burns' image in the pupil of his eye. I'm saying all of this because this is how this title came about and how so much of this book was set in motion from that first point with me addressing Burns. You know, really laying out there, that's Shara speaking. For the most part, 
The book is in other people's voices, but the opening and closing are mine. And asking him, essentially, why am I here doing this? You know, why am I asking you to speak when you're dead? And I think it was really standing in that museum in, in Edinburgh, looking at that Magdi Armid portrait. Right next to it was a photograph, Knox Callum's, a different photographer's of some ruins in contemporary, you know, ruined buildings in Glasgow. And it was titled No Ruin Stones after the Magdi Armid. And that conjunction of things, you know, standing there talking to Callum and seeing these things next to each other and saying, why? Are they all in this space, and why am I here? I went home that afternoon and wrote that poem. I then wrote a third of this book in the 14 days I was there. They had opened the floodgates. This was after like three years of research and thinking about this. Would you mind reading one of the poems? Of course, a title poem. I say a title poem because there are two. This is the first in the book. The address is to Robert Burns. And as I mentioned, it's after Callum Colvin's portrait of Hugh MacDiarmid. You saturate the sight of those who come after, poets and painters alike. Your words invade my mind's listening, manacle my tongue when I try to speak. On all, I backward cast my eye and fear and cannot see. Who would I have been to you? What stone in the ruined house of the past? In this world, I am unloosed, belonging to no country, no tribe, no clan, not African, not Scotland. And you, voice that stalks my waking and dreaming, you more myth than man, cannot unmake history. So why am I here, resurrecting you to speak, when your silence gulfs centuries? Why do I find myself on your doorstep, knocking, when I know the dead will never answer? And, you know, if we even sort of want to turn this lens on ourselves, because part of the book is dealing with me using the dramatic monologue as a form. So this is a dramatic monologue with me speaking to, to Burns, but much of it is Burns speaking to Gilbert, his brother back home, who's writing letters to, or another point, you know, there are different points of address, but there, there's just a series of many of them dramatic monologues here. And the reason I mention that is I hope for us also to hear ourselves as that you, because it's very easy, it's very easy to say, oh, these famous poets that did these things, and they have this gap between who they were in life and the ideals they professed in their art. But I would ask how many of us, if we turned the camera on ourselves, would also not see those gaps. If we're being truthful, what are the ideals we hold right now in the present that we do not actuate in the actions of our lives. So, you know, I, I just am deeply interested in that question in this book, not just for Burns, but Burns is a way into asking that. Poet Shara McCallum, speaking about her latest book of poetry, No Ruined Stone. Shara McCallum is professor of English at Penn State University and was appointed the 2021-22 Penn State Laureate. 
No Ruined Stone is Shara McCallum's sixth book of poetry. Shara McCallum's website can be found at sharamccallum.com where you can read and listen to her poetry, find her books, and arrange to attend one of the many events that she is involved in both online and in person. For full details, visit sharamccallum.com. Many thanks to Shara McCallum. And many thanks to you, WVIA's Fiona Powell.